In the TIPBS podcast, you get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to the TIPBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. PBS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. In this episode, we interview Dr. Rao Silver. Dr. Silver is a board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist with over 20 years of experience. He has held several appointments, including Associate Professor at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons, the first Vice Chairman of NYU's Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and as the Deputy Director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Bellevue Hospital Centre in New York City. Dr. Silver has authored and co-authored over 200 published articles and books, including the Handbook for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in Children and Adolescents. In this interview, he speaks about his research and clinical work with children and families in New York following 9-11 and has written about the risks, resilience, and recovery of these children. Dr. Silva is interviewed by my colleague, Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy. I hope you find the interview useful and interesting. Um, Dr. Silva, welcome to the podcast. Um, I was wondering if you could share with us your background and what got you interested in working with, in post-traumatic stress with children and adolescents. Absolutely. Well, um, so I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist uh, here in the United States in New York. And um, what started early on in my career after I did my research fellowship, um, I started doing research uh, with through a National Institute of Mental Health uh, Research Center. And we were looking at neurotransmitters at the time, uh, peripheral neurotransmitters, of course, uh, in different populations, including anxious and depressed and normals, and seeing how stress in and of itself changed the tone of these neurotransmitters. Uh, in my clinical work, I from there I kind of became the director of two of the hospitals in New York City uh, affiliated with uh, Columbia Presbyterian, and as a result, it's located up in Harlem. A lot of traumatized children in in that in those centers and you know the array of traumas were were really astounding and you know it doesn't people don't come in with singular traumas in settings like that uh they're they're repeatedly uh traumatized over and over and uh it caught my eye that you know we'd have patients that came in that had very complex pictures and siblings that may have experienced exactly the same thing without much in the way of symptomatology. And that uh, piqued my interest into resiliency and vulnerability. And then I moved over to Bellevue Hospital, which is the, it was the first of the child and adolescent divisions in the country in the United States. And, uh, you know, it's part of the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation, which is, 
it's, it's the safety net for all uh, New Yorkers, but especially those of, uh, that are disenfranchised or of poor socioeconomic means. And uh, I saw it that it was kind of important not only to do research and understand it, but to develop, you know, clinical um, resources for them. And so we partnered with um, the Administration of Children's Services, which is the organization that's used for protective services for for kids that are traumatized or abandoned, et cetera, um, may have to be removed. So that's where it all emanated from. Yeah, yeah, right. That's fascinating. So I was wondering if you could talk about your experience of 9-11 and your work with um, children and adolescents who were affected by that um, incident. Well, so, you know, uh, 9-11 was more than a shock for everyone. and. at the time, I was at Bellevue and NYU, which, you know, it's one of the leading centers in New York City um, for care. And, uh, and when the towers came down uh, or was, were attacked, um, police, uh, the, the headquarters for, for police operations were located in one of the towers. So they moved it up to Bellevue, which is also a city building. And they ran a lot of what was going on there. We treat probably in the vicinity of several thousand kids, including having a a school on site and inpatient units and day hospitals, much like like your systems have. Um, And so that day, uh, I actually, you know, we were coordinating and trying to take care of the needs of these kids and especially trying to get them home. And, uh, and, you know, we were located on the 22nd floor. We're located on the 22nd floor uh, at Bellevue, which is about mm, not even a mile from the World Trade Center. And up on the yeah, 22nd yeah. floor where we were, you had an unobstructed view of the World Trade Center. So unfortunately, we had a, uh, a bird's eye view for all the destruction that went down and saw the towers go down. So it was pretty traumatic to 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 the staff and to the people that were watching it. It was rather surreal in many ways. And uh, then thereafter, it was an array of delivering services to really thousands of families. Um, we partnered with New York City and ACS and opened up centers. And actually, um, very quickly, we developed a partnership with about eight different organizations in New York City um, to apply for a grant, a health care delivery grant for kids that were exposed either directly or indirectly to the trade centers. And it was a, um, an evidence-based model to deliver um, cognitive behavioral therapy for those people that met criteria or other services for people that didn't meet full criteria. And it went on for about a year after uh, 9-11. So it, it was... It was it was unfortunate and interesting, and uh, and I think also rather successful. It was a good paradigm. Yeah. yeah. So what did you see? Um, what was your observations of the children and families that you were working with through that program? What did you typically see in their reactions to what had happened? Well, th- there are a variety of reactions. You know, one of the things that you see, and, you know, I hate when you speak of generalities because there's so many exceptions to it. You you saw people and, you know, that, that were traumatized and were able to process their, their, their grief 
and expressed it and they actually had a tendency to to fare better in the long run. People who kind of suppressed a lot of the things um, and it started to come out in, in different forms much later on and that leads to complications in the treatment. Um, you know, clearly people, I mean, we had people whose parents were there, kids whose parents actually died in the World Trade Center who couldn't even be reached. Uh, you know, they were they were in Long Island, which is, you know, 60, 70 miles away, had no way because, you know, mass communications broke down for a while. They didn't know what was going on with their parents. They were stranded little kids. So it, many disasters, many, you know, uplifting stories, um, you know, proximity and direct exposure was, you know, gives a much more severe presentation to things. Um, but the other thing that was really astounding was how the media, um, oh. it, it was almost like a, uh, it, was, it was fanning the flames in, in many ways. And the younger kids are, the less they understand about what they're seeing. They just see images over and over again of horrific things. And, and they think they're just going on over and over again, which is just a re-traumatization model, which is... Uh, it's very difficult for little kids that can't understand it. Mm, that's fascinating. We had a um, floods here in, uh, I think it was 2011, and there was this mass kind of media coverage of it, and that's all you saw on TV all the time. And um, I remember working with, uh, you know, families and children who were involved in that. And, you know, that was one of the biggest pieces of advice we got from Givis to minimize that kind of, uh, you know, exposure to that. Um, what were your thoughts about that in terms of, you know, there's so much, one of the questions we get is the kind of violence and, and kind of stories that kids are exposed to in daily kind of media uh, on a daily basis. What were your thoughts about that and how that interfered with how they saw the world and how it affects kind of the vulnerable kids who have been traumatized before? Well, you know, I, I think the point of the vulnerable kids are is is really well taken. Uh, you know, everything isn't um, malignant. Um, there are people who who don't have the matrix, the vulnerability to be affected, and and they watch it and they go through their lives, and it's not you know, uh, of major uh, effect on them. But people that do have the vulnerability people that have been traumatized, that it triggers a memory, a thought, uh, a cascade of chemicals um, in their bodies uh, are exquisitely, um, you know, susceptible to re-exposure and to developing signs like flashbacks oh. all over again, and then the symptoms recur. You know, the other thing that you saw with such widespread um, exposure to trauma was that um, you got to see what happens across the, the the lifespan in terms of trauma and trauma responses. And you see how, you know, younger kids, it's almost like a seedling coming out of the ground. They're not very differentiated. And so uh, the, the, the manifestations of symptoms are, are also not very elaborate and they're somewhat constricted. And as, you know, communication and exposure to to different parts of life and, you know, be it drugs or classrooms or learning, you start to see how the symptoms proliferate and expand. Oh. And so 
you know, from little seedlings of symptoms in, in infants and, and kids, you know, regressive behaviors and crying and not being able to sleep alone or bedwetting to, you know, kids that grow despondent and crying and even acting out as, as their expression of the stress model, the trauma stress model. Yeah, that's a really nice analogy. Um, I was interested in your thoughts about um, your observations about the children and families that responded well to treatment compared to um, the f children and families who continued to have kind of difficulties um, over time and, uh, you know, that they weren't as responsive to treatment. Were, were they, did you have any observations about what differentiated them? Well, you know, it's interesting. There, are, there were... We, we, we collected a lot, a lot of, of data on them. And sometimes when you collect a lot of data, it, it's, it's noise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you have a lot of variables and a lot of things look important uh, and they aren't necessarily. But, you know, we were, we were fortunate to, to, to track things like engagement, um, patient and family's ability to stay with treatment. Oh. And that that was an important uh, predictor of outcome, of positive outcome. Uh, patients that either get lost um, or can't follow through, uh, don't get complete forms of treatment, um, don't do as well. Mm. And so, you know, the, the, and it was it, it was kind of very interesting because we 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 were able to go out to the community, to the families, to follow them if they didn't come in. Mm. You know. And do the follow-up assessments to, to grade their how they improved or didn't improve. And so um, compliance with treatment, being able to engage and continue um, are, are healthy predictors. There are differences that aren't always well understood. Um, there were um, ethnic differences. Oh. Uh, there were some age differences. Um, the adolescents... Uh, in 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 our samples, um, did did improve, but didn't improve as well as um, as the as the children in in the model. And there were different ethnic uh, groups that didn't fare as well um, as in in the treatment. That may have been a bit of a byproduct. In our sample, there were a lot of ethnic uh, minorities, uh, you know, Hispanics and African Americans and Asians and the smaller population were the Caucasians because they were probably getting private they were getting private care and other yeah, yeah, yeah. but the Caucasians uh, were a small subsample and they didn't do as well um, but like I said that may be a byproduct an artifact of sample size uh, you've done a lot of research into resilience and I wondered if you could talk about what factors play into children and young people being resilient to traumatic events. Right. So, you know, resiliency is a fascinating uh, parameter because, you know, you can, there have, and there's been a lot of people that have looked at it, you know, um, you look at, you know, is it gender? Is it age? Is it, you know, intelligence? Is it pre-existing conditions that do it? And we actually did a, uh, a systematic, pretty nicely designed clinical study looking at uh, resiliency and vulnerability factors, trying to, trying to look at all of those uh, different um, all of those different characteristics to try to decipher, you know, which 
which may be um, vulnerability or resiliency factors of interest uh, in the first set of studies, not in the treatment studies. These, this wasn't a treatment study, it was a natural outcome study. Age and gender and ethnicity in that case, in and of itself, before treatment, didn't predict, were not associated with the severity of a reaction to trauma, right? Um, but IQ was. Um, the higher your IQ was, it kind of protected you from um, development of, you know, full P PTSD symptoms. Traumatic experiences, the, the kind. So, you know, in that study, we looked at physical abuse and sexual abuse and domestic violence. They didn't differ in a person's uh, development of uh, PTSD or the symptomatology. Um, however, antecedent anxiety. Uh, did correlate very highly with the development of full diagnostic criteria for for PTSD, and you know I I kind of let people think about that as a springboard model. Um, you know, there's a tone, and when you have an underlying tone that's already anxious and showing symptoms, if you stress it. It's like, you know, a trampoline. It starts to oscillate wider and wider with more and more symptoms. And so it makes sense from that perspective. You have the, the underpinnings of an anxiety disorder, which oftentimes post-traumatic stress has a lot of those features. You may be more predisposed to that. And conversely, protective factors, quote-unquote protective factors, besides IQ, we found that um, one of the more interesting findings are kids that have disruptive behavioral disorders were less likely to develop the symptomatology of post-traumatic stress disorder. But once again, it's that springboard model. These kids, what they often did, had not the propensity to develop symptoms, you know, from the DSM of, of post-traumatic stress disorder, but their behavioral uh, acting out increased dramatically, aggressions. And so we have, a, we have a framework of symptoms that make up a disorder, but the stress model and trauma to what's the underpinning or what's the baseline of the individual may manifest in actually different ways. So we track post-traumatic stress with, you know, depressions and flashbacks, um, but there may be another flavor of post-traumatic stress disorder in people that are disruptive behavior disorder. Oh. So that's, you know, that, those were the findings of, uh, of the, that particular resiliency and vulnerability studies. Yeah. Um, I was just curious about your thoughts about, you know, there's a lot of controversy over diagnoses and things like that. Did you have any thoughts about this idea of complex PTSD and, compared to kind of single event PTSD? Well, look, I mean, I think that in general, I think our nomenclature system is um, doesn't meet the needs of the clinical populations that come in. Uh, you know, there are large categories that really aren't always um, either helpful. I think it, it serves for the doctor and the clinician to say, well, where's our point of departure? Um, and, and more often than not, in real clinical studies, the complexity of um, PTSD is, is, is more appropriate than a clean 
cluster of, you know, 15 or 16 different symptoms. There's a lot of, uh, I don't like using the word dirty, but it's, there's a lot of things that come into the picture and it is complex. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I was wondering if you could speak about your research into um, the salivary cortisol levels in foster children um, and what that tells us about how abuse and neglect kind of impacts children and their brains. Right. Well, you know, um, the the diurnal pattern of cortisol production has been seen in kids for a long time. And usually you have relatively high morning levels of cortisol, and that's followed by a gradual decrease throughout the remainder of the day. Um, You know, maltreatment is, is, is a stressor. Um, and it serves as a risk factor. And, and what happens is that the cortisol system is one of the buffering systems, one of the first buffering systems that your body has to, to stress, you know, your body starts off by, you know, it gets stressed and it kicks off, you know, an epinephrine and and the super renal glands, the adrenal glands that sit above the kidneys, you know, has two real sections. It has a medulla and a uh, a cortex. Those two areas are highly responsible for that fight-flight phenomenon, either by secreting epinephrine, which gets you to pick up and run and gives you energy, breaks down fats, you know, it slows down, you know, glucose sequestration so that you have energy to do this. And then the body through the cortex starts releasing cortisol to say, whoa, calm down, we'll be okay. And um, what happens is that this, this, you know, this high thing, I've got this cortisol level to, to meet the day, you know, in the average kid gets actually blunted over the course of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we looked at about 26 kids that we were able to gather um, salivary cortisol. And, um, in in about sixteen of the twenty six, they had they were way off of the classical pattern for kids with atypical findings where their cortisol jumped instead of starting high and getting low, it starts low and starts jumping up at different parts of the day, which, which is abnormal. It's just telling you how their bodies are dealing with the stressors of everyday phenomena. Um, so it's an interesting finding because it's it's showing you that that people's coping mechanisms, it's not just an emotional thing. The coping mechanisms chemically in the body go awry. And thus, you know, you experience all sorts of symptoms, severity, and the different symptoms. And so it was a fascinating journey. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so what has your research found about how trauma impacts the development um, of children in the adolescent years? Um, have there any specific outcomes that you've found? Well, the, the most worrisome one is that, um, like I said before, using the analogy of the tree and the seedling, mm. right? Um, you know, people's coping strategies um, vary by their developmental abilities. And um, when you have adolescents, because of the freedom that they have to make decisions to, I'm going to go to therapy or not go to therapy, um, they also have the freedom to access drugs. And as a coping mechanism, one of the things that we were very taken by was the surprisingly higher rates of use of drugs in the community by kids that 
uh, we're developing f more elaborate pictures of PTSD than in the general population. And so that development always worries me <laughs> because, you know, it, you can treat the PTSD or you can address it. Um, it becomes a very different thing when you're dealing with PTSD and now a substance use problem. Um, oh. developmentally I think that people have to keep their eyes on it's a, it's a self-medication model right um, but not a healthy one because it's not always a controllable thing yeah no, that's great um, so um, as a um, child and adolescent psychiatrist what role do you see teachers playing in building resilience and supporting recovery of children who've been impacted by trauma teachers um, and people, you know, daycare workers, people that spend an awful lot of time with kids um, become the support system for kids that are traumatized uh, eight hours a day, five hours a day. And so their reactions, their own reactions are, are extremely important you know it's it's also like that model when you get on a plane and you know the 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 the, the attendant says to you well you know if you see the mask come down make sure you put it on your face first and then turn to the person next to you and make sure it's 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 on properly that's true too about trauma um no one is impervious especially to large-scale trauma whether you're a child or an adult you got to check yourself at the door and you can't expect teachers to they've got enough to do with teaching you can't expect them to be therapists but i tell folks all the time they're they're there eight hours a day maintaining the calm the reassurance making sure that they can identify symptoms changing behaviors early getting them to understand what those symptoms are and conveying that to the caretakers the parents so that they can get timely intervention is is of paramount importance for shortening the duration of dangerous symptoms of PTSD. So they serve as both support. They have to check. They have to be educated themselves about what are some of the manifestations when someone is trauma, and making sure that they can identify those things and get them over notify the guardians quickly about hmm, there's something going on. There is a, a visible difference in behaviors or actions or moods. Mm. There's a lot of talk about being trauma informed in your practice. Um, and there's a big push for that in our, you know, through our schools here. Is that how you see trauma informed practice as teachers being vigilant for those symptoms and um, alerting guardians quickly? Was there anything else that you'd see that would form part of that role? From my perspective, you know, it's it's pretty tough to be a teacher, but yeah. you know, that those are the principal things. I, you know, in in each country, different people do different things. Yeah. Here in the country, for example, um, you know, there is a, a, a very big demarcation. If you have a mental health problem and you're a teacher, you witness it, send it over to the child study team, or you know, alert the parents. That's all they want to be involved with. They want to do the teaching. In fact, there's a lot more. But um, so from our perspective, we try to respect those boundaries of what tell us they can and they can't do what they can or can't tolerate. Oh. And so there's probably a lot of things that would be optimal. You know, can you learn how to, you know, to do certain things, teach people certain 
uh, coping strategies to calm anxieties? Is it deep breathing or relaxation? But really, those are constructs that you know may or may not be accepted by, yeah. by the norms. You know, teachers here versus there. It's always good to learn coping strategies, right? Mm-hmm. And I've had teachers that sit down and will do that deep breathing and relaxation and counting and how do I break when this stress starts building up? You know, how do how do I start de-escalating that? Um, but other people say mm, that's not my job. <laughs> yeah, 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 and that's the case here too. I think um, that's sort of divide. Um, thank you so much. That was really interesting and useful. Were there any um, resources or um, contact details you'd like to kind of share with our listeners at all? Well, um, you know, there there is a uh, National Traumatic Stress Network here in the United States, and they have all sorts of free educational materials uh, and and informational stuff that uh, they love to disseminate and it's the national traumatic stress network and sequence and that's great we might put a link to that um as part of the notes for this um podcast thank you very much Um, we really appreciate your time and you have a great day over there as well thank you Raul. take care that was dr raul silver child and adolescent psychiatrist from new york To access the links and resources discussed in the episode, see the show notes on our blog at www.tipbs.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.